Well, friends, it's an honor and privilege to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you and to hear Him speak to us from His living Word. Uh, Before we begin, I'm going to pray for us briefly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that you, the great surgeon, Uh, would wield your heavenly scalpel upon all of our hearts with great care, revealing the ways that we have opposed you, revealing the ways that we have fallen short, and then binding up our wounds by pointing us to your mercy and grace in Christ. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18 as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. Today, we're going to be considering Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 19. If you're using the Bible that we provided, the section we're looking at begins on page 13. And I want to encourage you to have your Bible open so that you can follow along as I read. I'm going to read the entire passage. Uh, And then I also want to encourage you to keep the Bible open through our time together this morning as we are going to reference the passage often. Uh, Our our passage today is one of the darkest passages in all of the Old Testament. Uh, Its contents are troubling, and its message is sobering, and it's it's a message that we desperately need to hear today. Uh, When Christians encounter passages in the Bible like the one we encounter this morning, the temptation is to quickly move past them, just kind of act like they're not really there. But but when we do that, we're making a big mistake. Uh, It's a big mistake because, because quickly moving past them and failing to seriously grapple with them prevents us from coming to terms with the true sinfulness of mankind, of which we are all a part. It also keeps us from being able to truly appreciate the holiness and the goodness of God and ultimately robs us of an appreciation for the astounding mercy we have received if we've trusted in Jesus. So we don't want to move quickly past it. We want to sit, we want to see what it says, and we want to wrestle with its implications for our life today. So we're going to deal squarely today with God's judgment on Sodom and with the sin of Lot's daughters because the central message underlying this entire passage is crucial for us to understand, believe, and apply in our lives today. And we'll see that according to Jesus, what happens to Sodom is a microcosm of what will happen on a much grander scale when he returns to judge the world, and that day has yet to come. So this is highly applicable for us today, whether you believe in Jesus or not. So if you have your Bible open, please follow along as I read Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 19. We, we pick up in our passage, as the Lord and two angels wrap up their visit with Abraham and Sarah and head towards Sodom. This is God's word. Then the men set out from there, 
and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. 
Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay, lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink night, wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites 
to this day. The message for us is simple. We must be warned and amazed. We must be warned about God's total, righteous, and just judgment that he will pour out on the earth. And we must be amazed by God's astounding mercy to save his people from that judgment. If you're taking notes, those are our two points. We must be warned, that's point one, and we must be amazed, that's point two. So point one, we must be warned. We must be warned about the righteous and just judgment that God is going to pour out on the earth when Jesus returns. And the reason he's going to pour out his righteous and just judgment on the earth is because of how sinful and depraved mankind is. We see the sinfulness and depravity of mankind clearly in chapter 19. We're gonna start there and then come back to what we see in chapter 18. Go ahead and look at chapter 19 with me. Uh, In verses one to three of chapter 19, the two angels who were with God during his visit with Abraham, you'll recall they were in human form Those angels arrive in Sodom, and when they arrive, they're greeted by Lot, Abraham's nephew. You might remember remember that he's been living in Sodom since parting ways with Abraham all the way back in chapter 13 of Genesis. Uh, Lot then invites him into his home to eat and stay with him, but they refuse his offer and tell him that they plan to sleep in the town square that night, and that alarms Lot. If you look at verse three, you see he urgently presses them to stay with him. He twists their arm, right? No, 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 please. Do not sleep here in the town square. You must stay with me. And so they do. And this is our first hint that something's not right in Sodom. Why is Lot so concerned about these men staying the night in the town square? We quickly find out. The reason he is so concerned is because all of the men of Sodom are completely depraved. Look at verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they weren't there to warmly welcome Lot's guests. Look at verse five. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And when it says that we may know them, that means so that we can have sex with them. In the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, to know a person often refers to the act of sexual intercourse. Think of Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. The men of Sodom surrounding the house, all of the men, young and old, to the last man want to sexually assault Lot's guests but it gets worse. 
In verses seven to nine, you can look there with me. The men of Sodom become violent with Lot for refusing to bring his guests out. And so the angels pull Lot into the house and strike all of the men with blindness. Now you might think, if you pause and ponder this for just a moment, you might think that that would get their attention. Like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. Hey, you're blind, I'm blind too. Oh my gosh, we're all blind. Whoa, how did this happen to us? Well, maybe we are doing something wrong and we should repent and ask the Lord to show mercy to us. But is that what they do? No, that is not what they do. Look at verse 11. All the men, young and old, wore themselves out groping for the door. They were so enslaved to sin that being struck with blindness didn't stop them or even slow them down from pursuing their love of sin. They groped and groped and groped for the door until they wore themselves out. They just kept going. This is a sad and accurate a picture of the universal human condition that you'll find in the entire Bible. These men blindly groping for the door so that they can commit sin is what, a picture of what the Bible says all of us are like. We are blind to our sinful condition. Blind to God's holiness and completely enslaved to sin. Our love of sin blinds us to the horrifying reality of our condition and to the terrible fate awaiting us, a fate we see foreshadowed in the text. Immediately after striking the men of Sodom with blindness, the angels urgently pressed Lot and his family to flee to the hills because of the destruction the Lord was gonna bring on the city. Lot then responds in verses 15 to 21 by asking if he can flee instead to the small town of Zoar, and they agree. And then we read of Sodom's fate. Look at verses 23 to 25. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God brought complete destruction on the people of Sodom for their sins. And friends, we must be warned by this passage. Throughout the New Testament, God's judgment on Sodom is said to be a microcosm, in miniature, a microcosm of the judgment God is going to pour out on the whole earth when Jesus returns. As terrible and total as this judgment is on Sodom, the one that's coming on the earth when Jesus returns will be far worse. And for those of you who don't understand yourself to, to follow Jesus, I realize this is heavy. This is what the Bible teaches. And so this is what we teach, right? I recognize this is heavy, but I trust that God in his sovereign goodness 
appointed you to be here today because he wanted you to hear this message. There is an inescapable judgment awaiting all who've sinned against God. Now the temptation though, when you encounter a passage like this one, is to compare yourself to the men of Sodom and think, I'll be just fine, (laughs) I'm not as bad as them. But this passage doesn't just teach us about the coming judgment, it also teaches us about the state of all mankind. I wonder if you noticed that all the men of Sodom, down to the very last one, Moses impresses that upon us, young and old, all of them to the last one, were enslaved to sin. And that is what the Bible says all of us are like in God's eyes. We may not have sinned in the exact same ways as the people of Sodom or as Lot's daughters, but all of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's laws. All of us have fallen short of his glory. There won't be anything unfair about God's judgment. Why don't you just think about what goes on on the earth, and I'm confident you agree with me in your heart of hearts. Think about the rampant sexual abuses that occur on the earth. Unjustified, horrible sexual abuses. Sexual slavery. Brutal murder. Serial killing. Right? What, what this passage teaches is it's hard to swallow, but the reality is sin has so devastated mankind that these types of things happen every day in the world. And we look out and we say, and we rightly say, that is wrong. Someone should do something about that. And God says, I am going to do something about that. I am. I have appointed a day of judgment. I will make everything right. I am going to judge sin. And we should say, yes, do it, because it's good. The problem is, if we're honest, we cannot stand on God's side because all of us have sinned. You think about the fact that God says to Abraham, I am going to go down and see. Isn't that interesting? To to any of the teens here, that's the second time God has said this in Genesis. Do any of you know the other time that he has said that? I'm going down to see for myself. Anyone know? Adults either? At at the Tower of Babel. Abel was going to say at the Tower of Babel. Why would God go down to see? He's all-knowing. When God goes down to see, it's to say he will have perfect knowledge of everything that's gone on. He will have first-hand knowledge. Nothing will escape his notice. Every sin will be accounted for. He will go down and see it. Uh, We have uh, Nest cameras at our house. We have one on the front, one on the back. They're kind of cool, but kind of a pain. The kids unplug them sometimes, and so it's like, oh, I want to go see something. Oh, it turns out it wasn't actually plugged in, uh, right? But it's, it's neat. Like, it shows you what's happening on your front porch. Uh, but what, the, what I found was that if you go into the app, if you don't have the Nest Aware subscription, you got to pay extra, you can only see, like, a few things. Like, you can't go back a couple days, you know, oh, I'm missing a package from this date. Who came yet? No help there. 
you need to pay extra to have the Nest Aware subscription. So I paid extra to get the Nest Aware subscription, and it's awesome. I can go back and see everything that has happened in that narrow field of view, my, my door to my sidewalk, and I can hear everything. That's a word for you guys who might walk by our house at some point. I hear what parents are saying to their kids. I hear what the guy's saying to his dog. I hear what the dude's saying on his AirPods. It's kind of weird, right? I, I am now fully aware of everything that's happening, but the problem is, as nest aware as I might be, my field of view is limited. I get the front porch to the sidewalk. God gets it all. He's God aware. He sees everything. He goes down to the earth to find for himself to see if there is anyone righteous in the earth and what he finds is none righteous. No, not one. And that's why we say God's judgment that's coming on the earth is righteous and just. That's the point of the whole conversation with Abraham in chapter 18. It's so important for us to get that conversation in order to understand the rest of the passage. The back and forth about whether God would sweep away the righteous with the wicked with God repeatedly saying he wouldn't, followed by God destroying Sodom, tells us that there was no one righteous. Not one. His judgment was perfectly just. And his judgment of us will also be perfectly just. If you don't follow Jesus, the call to you today is to respond to this warning by turning to God to ask for forgiveness and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And God says, if you do that, you will receive mercy, like Lot did, which we'll talk more about in a bit. But this passage isn't only a warning for non-Christians. It's also a warning for Christians. Throughout the New Testament, God's judgment on Sodom is held up as an example to Christians to keep them from adopting the worldview, lifestyle, and habits of the world around them. Think about the passage that Leah read this morning when Jesus is instructing his disciples in Luke 17 about the second coming and how they should live in light of that. He says, on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Friends, remember Lot's wife. She is an example of someone who sought to preserve her life. The love of the world had such a grip on her heart that even while she was fleeing from the city, because it was going to be destroyed, she looked back longing for it. Sodom had made its way into her heart and she was judged for it. Friends, we face the same danger. Living as we do in the midst of a culture that's opposed to God, we need to keep careful watch on ourselves to ensure that the culture isn't rewiring our hopes and desires or subtly changing our understanding of who God is and who we are and why we're alive. Uh, our, our chief reason for life is not to express ourselves or to actualize all of our desires. It's to glorify God and to submit to his rule, right? We don't want the culture rewiring and changing what we think our purpose in life is, and we don't want the culture desensitizing us to the disastrous effects of sin. 
remember Lot's wife. This is why there are so many commands in the New Testament to carefully consider how you're living and how the world is shaping you. Right? Think of some of them. Live carefully in the world. Don't love the world or the things of the world. Keep watch over yourselves. Examine yourselves. So my question to you is how are you doing living carefully in the world? Are you examining yourself? How are you being shaped by the world? Where is the love of the world finding a home in your heart? Right, this is going to look different for all of us, right? But I wonder, how are you being shaped by what you watch on a regular basis? Is what you're watching desensitizing you to sin, normalizing sin, or enticing you to sin? Are you able to spot how what you're watching celebrates sin? or presents a different view of the world than God's view. There's nothing that you watch that doesn't have a message underneath it. Can you spot that message and how it lines up with God's world? How is the world discipling you through what you listen to? Are the news outlets you're listening to making you angrier, more judgmental, quicker to speak and slower to listen? Are the podcasts you're listening to diminishing the power of the gospel or dulling you to truth? How is what you're regularly scrolling through shaping your desires and affections? Is it teaching you to love God more or to love the world more? Friends, remember Lot's wife. Are there things that you are doing or indulging in that no one else knows about? Do you have other Christians in your life who you've opened your life up to, right? Sin kept in the darkness is like mold. It grows, but when it's brought out into the light, it dies. And I wanna wanna talk to those who have children. If you have children, are you keeping that same careful watch over each of them individually? Where are their specific sin tendencies? What out in the world is vying for their particular affections given their particular personality and how can you walk alongside them and disciple them and loving God more than the world? You gotta look at the, the contrast here. Like, I wanna be crystal clear. Training kids up in the way that they might not depart from the way than when they get older. Doing the right thing as a Christian parent does not always, you know, it's not one plus one equals two. You don't do it and out pop good kids. It's just not the way that it works. It's biblical wisdom. But you do have to take a look at the contrast between Abraham and Lot and between how Abraham is called to live. He's gonna teach his kids righteousness and justice that he might train them up in the way that they should go to follow all the ways of the Lord. And then you look at Lot and you see how his daughters have lived and how Sodom has affected what they think is normal. You see how his sons-in-law just mock him when he says that there's judgment coming. Right? We want to think carefully about how we can disciple our kids to spot what is going on out in the world and how it's opposed to God and how it's going to seek to draw them away from the Lord and teach them how to spot those things and to turn to the Lord in faith, which we all need to do as well. Friends, sin is so strong that we cannot fight it on our own. We need other people in our life walking alongside of us and speaking into our lives. And that's why you have commands in the New Testament about guarding one another, 
see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, which is why it's so important for us and for all Christians to be committed to a particular body of believers among whom you can know them and be known by them. And if you don't have relationships like that at CBC and you're a member of CBC, come talk to me or one of the elders so that we can help you think about how to build those relationships in the church in your life. And speaking of church, this is why it's so important for us to gather weekly with the church. The longer you stay away from the church, the easier it is for the love of the world to find a home in your heart. God uses the gathering of the saints, the singing, the prayers, and the preaching of the gospel to reveal the ways we've lived more like the world than we should and to draw us to himself again. Friends, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. I'm certain, I'm gonna say I'm certain, Lot's life and his wife's life looked identical. One made it out, one didn't. The love of the world is gonna affect us all differently. How is it making its way into your heart? And how you, can you open that up to others and to the Lord so that you can turn away from the world? To the teens, I have a different set of instructions for you. I want you to notice again that all the men of Sodom were involved, down to the very last one of them. What this says to you is that even if all of your friends are doing things, saying things, or believing things, that does not therefore make it right. Just because if a whole crowd of people is doing it, doesn't mean it's right. Even if everyone around you is doing something you know is wrong, or affirming things you know are wrong, or saying and believing things you know are wrong, it doesn't mean you should do it too. You need to test everything that everyone around you is saying, doing, and believing against God's word. We'll talk a lot about today. Be on the right side of history. Be on the right side of history. One, history is God's story. In the end, he will reveal who is on the right side of history and who isn't. Point two, it's far better to be on the right side of eternity than on the right side of history. And being on the right side of eternity usually means you are gonna have to stand over and against a whole crowd of people who are doing something different and going a different direction. I want you to get used to that now so that when you grow older in the world and things get harder, you've been trained to turn from it already, right? Friends, we need to be warned. Warned about the righteous and just judgment that God is going to pour out on the earth when Jesus returns. But we not only need to be warned, we also need to be amazed, which brings us to point two. We need to be amazed by God's astounding mercy to save sinners from that judgment. After his escape, we learn that Lot is afraid to live in Zoar. He ends up living in a cave with his two daughters. And while there, his daughters devise a sinful scheme to get him drunk and get pregnant by him, which they successfully carry out. It's a troubling scene on numerous levels. But what I want you to see is how similar this entire episode, the judgment on Sodom and the sin of Lot's daughters is to Noah and the flood, right? In Noah and in the account of Noah and the flood, God looked down on the earth, saw the wickedness of man was spreading, right? And it was only, the intentions of man's heart were only evil continually, just like God went down to Sodom, saw the wickedness of Sodom down to the very last man. 
And then in response to the wickedness of man in the days of Noah, God judged the entire earth with a flood but saved one man and his family. And in response to the wickedness of Sodom in the days of Lot, God judged the entirety of Sodom with fire but saved one man and his family. Yet after being saved through the flood, Noah got drunk and one of his children sinned against him just like Lot, who after being saved from the judgment on Sodom, got drunk and his children sinned against him. In the end, both accounts show that whether God judges the earth on a massive scale or on a small scale, as long as man remains, the curse of sin remains. To remove the curse of sin, God is going to have to show astounding mercy to not only save mankind from judgment, but also free us from the power and curse of sin. And the glorious news for us today is that God has done just that. He has accomplished, accomplished a merciful salvation through which believers have not only been rescued from his judgment, but also delivered from the power and curse of sin in their lives. And we see that merciful salvation foreshadowed throughout the passage. I want you to notice first, notice why Lot was saved. Look at verses 27 to 29. After God judged Sodom, we read, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham and Lot was saved. God remembered Abraham and so saved Lot. Now we know from the New Testament that Lot was saved also because he believed he believed the warning of the angels and fled without looking back. He was made righteous by faith. But what Moses is highlighting here is that Lot's salvation was also based on his relationship to another, to Abraham. God promised Abraham back in chapter 12 that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him and that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Lot was blessed with salvation because of his relationship to Abraham. God remembered Abraham and so saved Lot. And God's covenant with Abraham in which those who bless Abraham will be blessed foreshadows for us more clearly than any other covenant in the Old Testament, the new covenant. The new covenant that we have come to share in, not because of our own inherent righteousness, but because of our relationship to another by faith. And that other is Abraham's great son, Jesus Christ. It is because of the righteousness of Christ that we are saved and not because of our own inherent righteousness. If Lot teaches us anything, he teaches us that if we're going to come to share in God's amazing, merciful salvation, it will not be because of our wisdom, our righteousness, or our desire for God. Just take a step back and look at Lot. Look and think about everything that you know about Lot from chapter 13 to chapter 19 now, right? Chapter 13, 
He was deceived by the abundance of the land which he saw with his eyes. He walked by sight and not by faith and so parted ways with Abraham through whom God was gonna bless the world. Terrible decision. Chapter 14, after being deceived by the fruitfulness of the land and going to live in Sodom, he's then abducted in battle because he's living in Sodom rather than with Abraham, who's safe through the battle. He's rescued then later by Abraham and returns to Sodom. Then in chapter 19, he's clearly been influenced by the culture of Sodom. He's sitting in the city gates, which in the ancient Near East meant he was fully part of the comings and goings of the city. He shows glimpses of kindness by his hosting the men and trying to protect them from Sodom, but then makes the unspeakably terrible decision to offer his daughters to the men of Sodom so that the other men would be protected. Then, after being told God is going to destroy Sodom, he doesn't flee. He lingers around the house, but Lot lingered. And then he has to be forcibly removed from the city by the angels, and as he's being told to flee, his first thought is to negotiate a better place to flee to. And finally, we see that the man who had so many flocks, chapter 12, chapter 13, that the land couldn't sustain him, is now living in a cave with his two daughters. Moses is pressing home. Follow Lot's path, and you may barely make it out. And if you do make it out, it's God's grace and mercy to you, right? That is what he's teaching us today. Lot teaches you and me today that salvation comes from the Lord. Your salvation and mine is entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Just as Lot had to be forcibly removed from the city to be rescued from God's judgment, so you and I had to be forcibly removed by God from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We weren't just lingering around the kingdom of darkness. We were dead in the kingdom of darkness. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter two? And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Be careful, dear Christian. Be careful that you do not think of the men of Sodom or the daughters of Lot and self-righteously sneer and thank God that you aren't like them because you and I were just like them. And if you've trusted in Christ from an early age and you've not been drawn away to sin in this way, what I want you to know, kids, if you believe in Jesus, is that that is a gift of God in which he is protecting you from ever walking down that path. All of it is God's grace. All of it is God's mercy. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, dead in trespasses and sin, Children of wrath. We are not supposed to read the judgment on Sodom and say, thank God for what God did to them. It's praise God for rescuing us from the judgment that we deserve, which is just like theirs. We need to thank God for his astounding mercy. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You and I have nothing, absolutely nothing, to boast about before God and before one another. To truly be amazed at the mercy we have received from God, though, we have to think about the specifics of what God did so we could receive his mercy. We were no different than the men of Sodom or the daughters of Lot. Our specific sins may have been different, but in God's sight, we were enslaved to the passions of our flesh and children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now we're saying we're children of God who have received mercy. How did that happen? Right? If God just looks down on us and says, poof, mercy, you've all received it, and, and no other transaction happens, that is unjust because God has not rightly punished sin. He must rightly punish sin. And the amazing news of the gospel is that God did come down to earth and see. He came for himself. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, lived for 30 years gathering all the evidence he would need to eternally judge and condemn mankind. But what did the Lord Jesus do instead? He bore the judgment we deserve. He took the curse of sin on himself. The judgment that you and I deserve, the judgment foreshadowed in this judgment of Sodom, fell on Christ so that God's mercy could fall on us. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Friends, God is exceedingly merciful. It is impossible for us to grasp the fullness of his mercy towards us in Christ. The depths of his mercy are unplumbable. The heights of his mercy are unclimbable, and the expanse of his mercy is uncrossable, and that mercy is for sinners, which means it's for you. There is nobody who is beyond receiving God's mercy. There is nobody who has outsinned God's mercy. You may think that because of what you've done, you're, you're beyond receiving mercy from God because of how greatly you sin. but friend, nobody is beyond the reach of God's mercy. God came to save sinners. All you have to do to know that you're not beyond the reach of God's mercy is to look at the people that he saves in scripture. He saves Lot. He saves David. He saved Paul, the murderer and persecutor of the church. He saves great sinners. Just look around this church. We are a church of great sinners in need of great mercy from God. He saves great sinners who know themselves to be in need of a great savior and if you know that you have sinned against God, I promise you this, that if you turn to God in faith and believing in his son, Jesus Christ, you can know that you will receive mercy from God. That's what everyone in this church has in common. We're all great sinners in need of a great savior who've been bound together by the great mercy God has shown us. That's what binds us together as a people. And since we've received such great mercy from God, we should be the type of people who show mercy to others. But the only, you only show that type of mercy to others if you know yourself to be in need of mercy from God and understand, grow in understanding what it is that God has done for you in Christ. So as you go about your week, don't just remember Lot's wife. Remember God's extravagant mercy to you in Christ. And let that propel you to also extend the same mercy to others. And know that when you fail, which we all will, 
your salvation is not dependent on your obedience, but on God's promise to remember his covenant with Christ. And he will remember it. God's mercy to you is new each morning. But his offer of mercy won't last forever. We have this life only to repent. The day of judgment foreshadowed in this passage is coming. And we need to be warned about it so that we might turn in faith to, be, to Jesus Christ and then be amazed by God's mercy to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to impress the truths of this passage upon all of our hearts. Help all who are here who have not trusted in Christ to be warned and to turn to Christ in faith. Help all who have trusted to remember Lot's wife and to remember your extravagant mercy. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.